This episode of Higher Ed Happy Hour is brought to you by Helix Education, the leader in data-driven enrollment growth. I'm not sure if you've seen this yet, but Helix just published the Enrollment Growth Playbook, the largest collection of adult enrollment growth strategies ever released to the industry, outlining how Helix grows their partner's enrollment eight times faster than the industry average. From determining growth opportunities to designing a marketing strategy, streamlining enrollment operations, solidifying a retention approach, and leveraging technology and data intelligence, the Enrollment Growth Playbook is an institution's step-by-step roadmap to adult student enrollment success. And you can download it today for free. Just visit helixeducation.com slash happy hour. And hello and welcome to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. My name is Kevin Carey. I direct the education policy program at New America. I am joined by my today by my regular co-host, uh, Libby Nelson, editor of policy at Vox.com. Associate editor for Associate policy and editor. politics. I think you just promoted me like three notches. Good. Awesome. And well, just for now. You never know, you know, in the next yes. month or so, there could be a ter- tragic accident in the Vox office or something. And as of next month, no, two months from now, adjunct professor at American University. Adjunct professor at American University. Well, Mazel that's going to become a regular part of this podcast, mm-hmm. no doubt. Um, and we have a special guest today, Steve Tellis, a professor what, associate adjunct full professor. I am associate associate, adjunct, associate professor <laughs> of political science at Johns Hopkins and now a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. Oh, I did not know that. Congratulations. Um, so we are drinking today Scheinerbach. It's springtime here in Washington, D.C. So cheers. Oh, oh, oh God. I go just and, toasted the microphone. Cheers. Hook them horns. <laughs> horns. Wait, so what is, is the Texas connection? Though? I was just going to There's got to be some very like three causal links thing that makes – no, it's just, this is the beer that was in the fridge 20 minutes ago. When I, I realized see. I did not have time to go out and get us drinks. Um, that is the story of much of the alcohol we drink on this podcast. Yes. Oh, I had to go and buy something. I feel like I did not have a, what I wanted. Isn't it, is, isn't it possible, though, to have some kind of post hoc rationalization? I feel like you should at least have a story, <laughs> story, even if it's not true. The infamous bitter Manhattans when we yeah, had the wrong yeah. kind of vermouth the yes. week after the election. Yeah, and they were truly the worst drink I have ever right. had in my life. But again, it was, we it was five days after the election. <laughs> and I, I contend that fate. We deserved those bitter Manhattans, given the time. Someday I'll bring in a blender and do, do frozen drinks sometime okay. this summer. I've gotten very uh, into frozen drink making lately. Uh, if we ever have a Japanese thing, we can have like Midori sours mm. or something that like that. That sounds good. We'll do one on Which um, I think Asian most people have never t-shirt. have not had since they were like 16 <laughs> at the prom. That's like the official drink of proms, right, is Midori sours. Um, so we're going to get into uh, the news of the day to start with soon. But first, I just want, uh, for our listeners, Steve, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what... What do you work on? What have you done that people think are interesting? Who are you? Uh, who am I? That's a big question. So, again, I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins University. I've written on a number of subjects. My sort of biggest book was uh, The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement, which was published in 2008, which was on the Federal Society, Center for Individual Rights, um, Institute for Justice, the Law and Economics Center, which is now at, John, at George Mason. So. Uh, I worked on law, but that book also got me involved in charitable foundations. A lot of the work in that was based on the internal files of the Olin Foundation, mm-hmm. uh, which I was the only academic ever to get access to it. Um, I've written some on education, uh, K-12, uh, with Joel Maida, uh, the great uh, scholar at uh, Harvard School of Ed. Uh, last year, I published a book on uh, with a graduate student 
called Prison Break on why conservatives are changing their mind on mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. And I have a book coming out this summer um, with Brink Lindsay at the Cato Institute uh, called The Captured Economy on the political economy of upward redistribution. Um, and uh, in addition to that, I run our um, semester in D.C. program for Johns Hopkins called the Aitchison Program, which I think is an interesting kind of innovation in uh, higher ed. Uh, what we do is it's our semester in D.C. Most of the semesters in D.C., again, don't hopefully we don't get any rate calls about this, um, are not particularly uh, uh, – Deeply good. structured. Uh, good. Good would be another word you could use for that. Uh, that would be your word. Um, that is, people come just for the internship, uh, and then they try and figure out how to piece together some credits that don't put very many demands on the students. That's sort of your your standard uh, semester in D.C. program. And when I was asked to take this program over, my idea was, well, how can we actually put together a program that prepares people for public service. It's like a a semester-long boot camp for people who want to go into public policy jobs. So I talked to lots of people who were hiring people, including my wife, right, who hired, who was, uh, who has hired people coming right out of um, college and asked them about what were all their complaints about what people could do and what they couldn't do. Um, They all said that they they couldn't write, Um, not just that they didn't know English, although there was some of that, but mainly they didn't know how to write for an audience. Um, So uh, Phil Longman of the New America Foundation is our writing tutor who works with them sort of, uh, you know, hand in hand um, to break them out of all their bad habits. And we have a rest of a curriculum that's all designed for different parts of the way of thinking about policy, organization theory, economics, um, that bring together a kind of coherent curriculum and all the students live together um, in uh, D.C., which also, I think, gets at a problem with most universities, which is universities advertise their living learning communities, Mm -hmm. but nobody lives with the people they're learning with, right? They're living with people who are taking all kinds of different classes. Mm -hmm. So the theory that people are going to be talking about what they're in classes with while they're, you know, in their dorm is really a fiction, right? That doesn't Mm -hmm. really happen. But in our program, because that's what they all have in common, um, it happens much more, uh, much more often. So, so it that's does, why it I'm does here. exist some places. I was in a dorm like that, and it's wonderful, but it's very rare. Yeah, I know. Actually, when I was Wait, at George Washington, French, French dorm? Is that what you no, mean? it was uh, the Communications Residential College in oh. Northwestern, which was uh, journalism, radio, TV, film, uh, communication. Some people who just wanted had an interest in that, but like eighty percent of us were in class together. Mm-hmm. It was great. Cool. It was right. the best part of my college life. Yeah, and in George Washington, where I went undergrad. Um, my first semester, I was in the politics and values program, and that one is sort of similar. It takes over 12-year credits in your first year. Everybody's living together. They're taking the same classes. Um, uh, and so the other advantage is you're in the same classes with the same students. So it's, it, you know, your conversations, it's a lot easier to pick up stuff from one class to another and apply things across classes in a way that, you just you just can't do in the ordinary way we organize universities. And again, I can do that in part because I'm in D.C., right? I'm far mm-hmm. from campus. They're happy to have me do it. They're happy to have somebody do it. Um, you know, it's often hard to get faculty run these kind of programs. Um, but the real question is, can you translate that back to the home campus, right? Could you actually right. do something like that in the university context? And that's a lot harder. Yeah. So true story, a couple years ago, the Johns Hopkins Board of Trustees paid me to come up and give a talk uh, about my book, The End of College, which we can argue about later if we have time today. Um, and so one of the things I said during this during my speech was 
because part of the end of college is a critique of undergraduate education. And I said, I said, you know, it, it can be great. For example, I have a friend, this guy, Steve Tellis, runs this program in D.C. It's really good. It's all for all the reasons that you just described. And then I said, but the, the, the bottom line is you didn't hire Steve because of any of those things. You hired him because of he wrote the rise of the conservative legal movement. Um, and he's basically kind of doing this because he thinks it's the right thing to do. And you cannot... You cannot consistently have great results based on an expectation of volunteerism among your employees. It actually has to matter for them. And afterwards, the dean of arts and sciences came up to me and very, very sternly told me that her, her, that that her, the professors were not volunteers. That that was not right. <laughs> um, but I think she's, I think she's wrong about that. Like, well, but again, I think it's it's possible to do the kind of thing I'm talking sure. about. Um, you know, in part, all universities need to do is not to try and have any kind of hierarchical diktat, right? Mm. Part of the thing to say is anybody who wants to run something like this can do it, right? Anytime, mm. anybody who wants to have, who can get a couple of faculty together, I mean, you can do this on campus, right? You get four or five faculty who simply want to coordinate their activity and say, look, we're going to deal with it. We're housing is just going to put everybody in the same uh -huh. floor, right? Mm -hmm. And we're going to do it. And you could do it with museum studies. Again, you could do it in D.C. There's a million other kind of forms of stuff you can do in D.C. You could do it in other places organized around other sort of general principles. You could take people to London. You could take them, you know, Paris, mm -hmm. anywhere, especially places where you can hire faculty locally instead of having to just to right. get them out of the university gen pop. And I think that, that rather than that is sort of, driving reform by allowing the faculty go, to go and mm. do stuff on their own, which in many of that cases, the reason is, though, the motivational reason is it's more enjoyable to teach that way, right? right so this is, this is a sneak preview of the argument that we may or may not have. Yes, done. okay. Mm -hmm. Good. I don't so get we'll, get we'll get through everything yeah. we'll else fast so you yes. guys can argue about this. I'm, I'm um, excited. So we'll start with, like, what's what's been happening since our last podcast, which was a little over a month ago here in D.C. Uh, what you has know, been happening? I mean, it just seems to me like the Department of Education is actually quite faithfully implementing Trumpism, um, which is a which is basically the two pillars of which are uh, nihilistic rejection of anything Barack Obama did and shameless uh, open for business to any large corporation or lobbyist who wants to come in and grab money. It's, I just think everything they've done can be explained by some combination of the two of those things. So uh, we've seen they just shut down the uh, long planned uh, single vendor loan servicing mm -hmm. process. Uh, despite like ample evidence that loan servicing is a semi ongoing train wreck disaster in America. Right. Which I think the government after student loans were shifted over to be directly made by the federal government in 2010, uh, there have been four main servicers and then a whole bunch of kind of smaller ones that have rotated among dealing with the loans, processing payments, calling people, I don't know, all the things that loan servicers do. I realize this is a term that like not everyone may know. Um, there was a plan, I believe, to shift to the best one. Right. Essentially, right. and get rid of this. Like, you could have two loans. This does not happen. They claim this does not happen very often, but several years ago, I wrote about the problem of split servicing, which is most people don't have one loan. They have multiple loans uh, that they took out different years, different interest rates. In some cases, they ended up with different servicers for each of these loans, which is a huge nightmare if you're trying to consolidate or trying to deal with a late payment and you end up having to call three companies instead of one. And apparently, they are just going to keep the status quo. Including some, I mean, some of them are bad. I mean, yes. they, they, they have not all been equally good. The, the fact that they even stayed in this business was mostly a concession 
to these organizations as part of the 2010 right. loan deal in the first place. Like, well, you can still do this. Right. And, and there's pay for this thing. Uh, the like past few years of the Obama administration, going back to probably 2012 or 2013, there's been this incredibly awkward dynamic around servicing where the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, some of the enforcement parts of the Ed Department were really going after private loans and private loan servicing and like kept trying to say like our services or our servicers are bad too, but you can't come out and say like these companies that the government is contracting right. with that are administering our loans also are bad. And so the CFPB, I think, in fact, did. But there was just sort of in, – in Ed, there was just sort of this like tiptoeing around that issue that was obviously a very difficult and delicate balance for them to pull off uh, and was kind of funny from the outside to, to watch them try to do. Right. I saw that happen. I saw Ted Mitchell get yelled at by Claire McCaskill, I think, about this mm -hmm. for like a solid 20 minutes at a mm -hmm. hearing one time. Of course, um, this whole function is sort of a strange, completely unnecessary residue mm -hmm. of the fact of how we decided to structure this policy area. So another yep. thing I did while I used to be at the New America Foundation as a fellow is I wrote an essay New called America, No Foundation. No, just, no, no, well, it was New America Foundation okay. when I was here. All right, fair enough. So that was entirely accurate. <laughs> okay. So was I wrote an essay called Kludgeocracy, the American okay. Way of Policy. Is it Kludgeocracy or Kludgeocracy? I call it Kludgeocracy. Okay. You can I call it whatever that, you want. I, I, someone told me I was wrong. Well, that some computer nerd may have done it's, it. So it is Kludgeocracy. I have never thought to pronounce it any because there's a d in it like that's not i don't know Comics, i think guys I, th I think it's up for grabs i think you can do it however makes you this feel is like good. gif and jif it's a religious war yes so like anyways anyways so um you know i mean we we could just run this whole thing straight through the government like the social security administration right where you would just you know where where the government would Give out a loan, it would just garnish your wages by whatever it was, right? Not just yeah, and that and that would be we just call it a day, right? It's only because of the way we organized this function that we have this degree of complexity that also creates this opportunity for rent seeking, right? And so that's a little bit connected to this book I've got coming out this summer, right? That rent seeking is often derivative of the very complex ways that we organize policy in the United States, which are fairly characteristic of American policymaking, but not in lots of other areas. Yeah, I, I will say for our listeners, uh, uh, Steve's essay on kludgeocracy is very good and really interesting and kind of opened up my perspective. On, it, it's like a... It's one of those things where you read it and then you understand the world in a little bit of a different and better way. And it kind of sticks in your head as a heuristic that allows you to sort of make sense of the chaos of daily living. So uh, so that's partly the book is partly a, there's a kludgeocracy element to it. Yeah, there's a kludgeocracy. Basically, the argument is the more complicated policy areas are – the more a the the, the more um, rent they offer they they offer right one of the reasons why things are complicated is because we have to cut people in on deals so Medicare Part D is a good example of that right so we didn't just hand out drugs directly to old people right we created these uh, far, you know pharmaceutical benefit um, firms that that do it right that's in many cases because at least the way Republicans used to be is they said well if we can't stop government at least we're going to cut our friends in on the action, right? Um, and you can think about lots of other parts of the welfare state are like that where there was a, a sort of conflict between Republicans and Democrats, and they solved it by Democrats getting big government and Republicans getting all their friends to uh, have a cut of it, right? And I think that that explains lots of parts of, you know, a, the, the medical system, right? It explains lots of parts of education, lots of parts. That's in, in some sense just a very characteristic part of the American welfare state. Yep. Right. Well, that's the only, I mean, that's the only argument for a return to fell the, the bank-based lending program. Like there is no policy argument whatsoever that right. that program was in any way better. It just happened to also cut private industry into the, 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 the spoils of it. And I don't think we've seen, unless I've missed it, a big... 
<clears throat> I guess they're taking care of this other stuff first. The kind of the way to cut the banks back into student lending writ large. I mean, no, I, I, I also, I mean, that issue, that issue is dead. Fell is dead. Like, I think the question is, is there some, is there some other way to right. do it by like killing Grad Plus or something? Like just doing it by not subsidizing loans in some other way and letting them lend as they will. Yeah, I could I could see this coming up in AGA. Should AGA ever advance? Ever and I'm realizing that as I say that, I have not checked on whether there have been hearings lately. But it doesn't feel like AGA has That's advanced you're, any. You're, yeah. you're in management now. It's not I your am, job. I am. Just nice. assign someone to do that. Just say, you know. A fun thing about being in management is I know way more about other policy areas. A, uh, a, a minor drawback is I'm like, oh, hi. I wonder what has been happening with education. I should right. probably look into that. That's so. okay. You can fake it. I, 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 have, I have been. I think yeah. I'm okay. Um, what else? Let's see. There's an a, a executive at Bridgepoint Education who is uh, on the payroll at Bridgepoint and also working for the Department of Education on, higher, on for-profit policy, presumably. Mm-hmm. So that's nice. Uh, there's the Secretary for Civil Rights, Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights, who right. I'm going to get this wrong and I don't want to libel anybody, but wrote a book that it, or a piece that at least at some point in the past cast doubt on the issue of whether sexual harassment was a real thing. Yes. Uh, which seems also about Again, right for the par for the this, course in terms of who's, who's got appointed. She's the of Title IX. Right, more right. Or less, yeah, like. essentially, um, which is not, again, not a surprise, but yeah. – uh, uh, they suspended the borrowed defense to repayment stuff, right? Yep. That's all kind of just on hiatus now, including in parts of Gainful, too, I think. Uh, oh, they uh, they repealed the teacher prep regs through, uh, yes. uh, through executive order, which yeah. is uh, relevant to K-12 as well as to higher education, mm-hmm. since a lot of those were about regulations on teachers' colleges, essentially, right. through the states. Right. So, Isn't all this mainly being done by those landing teams rather than – I mean, that's one of the other weird sure. – Because there's no people. There's still no, right. yeah, there are well, still no people as far as I can tell. Well, I guess there's, there's people, I, not permanent people. Well, I guess there's a question though in some of these areas of whether that's a an accident or by design, right? Because the landing teams get you around all of the normal processes of congressional oversight and hearings and investigations. Now there's some limits to what they can do. I don't think they can they can't actually formally sign off on regs and stuff, right? No. But it seems like there's lots of other stuff that they can do. And especially given that the administration uh, I don't know they knew what they meant by this, but they kept saying they were going to dismantle the administrative state. Mm-hmm. Um, in some sense, this is kind of a device for doing that, right? Um, by, you know, that you know, it may be, the, you know, having these landing teams is actually their preferred way of organizing government. Right? Mm-hmm. That, um, that and the Congressional Review Act. Right. So no surprises. But, Seems to, yeah. But sad and depressing, at least from my perspective. Um, all right, well, we'll just keep our eye on that, see how those things go as the months go by. Uh, so the topic that we were going to start with today, uh, probably Steve's suggestion, was there's been a lot of recent flare-ups of the, uh, by now, I think, somewhat familiar uh, narrative of a uh, conservative speaker invited to give a talk on a college campus, protest ensue, um, uh, maybe the speaker is allowed to speak, maybe he or she is not, and then it all becomes emblematic of various things. So I'm going to kick this off by saying a few things. Um, I consider myself to be something of a free speech absolutist, uh, definitely a card-carrying ACLU kind of guy. Which is what uh, somebody always <coughs> says right before they say right. they're going to be against yep, free exactly. speech. Exactly. Uh-huh. Um, and I know last year when we did the, the Kids These Days uh, special edition of the podcast, I was, I think, you know, like somewhat conventionally critical of of some of the kids these days. And I definitely, you know, I definitely don't like the like shout down dynamic where you invite someone to speak and they stand up there and then people like scream at them until they leave. That said, 
I also find myself kind of just weary of this whole thing again and again, and partly because I don't really understand what the stakes are. And so I want to take two things off the table to start with. One, um, uh, violence is wrong uh, most of the time and definitely in this context. Uh, so there's that. And two, taking off the table legal questions of if you're a public university, like what are your legal obligations to be a, a accommodating to whatever? Okay, I don't care about that stuff. The question is, my question is like, what is actually at stake from a free speech perspective? Uh, so yesterday, Ann Coulter's speech at UC Berkeley was canceled. So what? I mean, are, are Ann Coulter's free speech opportunities being oppressed somehow? Um, are, like, am I, are we supposed to pretend that Milo Yiannopoulos is anything other than a huckster who thought, figured out there was a way to make money from misogyny? Like, I don't actually really feel like free speech is at stake. And so I don't know why I should be mad about this stuff. Okay. So in my sense, so there's a couple of different examples, right? And you can array them from the Middlebury situation mm -hmm. with Charles Murray, uh, right. where the there was the AEI club. Um, uh, maybe soon New America. We need a New America club. New I American was just going to say, yeah, where are you joining? I'm going to yeah. join up because I'm in favor of something okay. in the middle. Anyway, so the, uh, <laughs> oh, man. So our, the, our development <laughs> team will be so sad <laughs> if they're listening to this. So, anyways, the. Um, so, you know, that was an, a, a real student group. They invited somebody, Charles Murray. That's a, I, I would put that on one end, and I'll explain why things are on one end and the okay. other, right? The other is there's Berkeley, and there the College of Republicans invited uh, Milo, right? Um, now, Milo, in my sense, is just a pure troll. Right. There's literally no intellectual content whatsoever. I don't even think his defenders think there's any intellectual content. He is just purely a troll, right? His intent is simply to find things that piss off people on the left, get them pissed off, get them to do things that are stupid and seem repressive, and then and then claim that he's being he's being repressed, right? In that sense, what he's doing is exactly what the Yippies did back in the 60s, right? Um, which was to try their their argument was that these again, it's always universities, right? Are basically secretly repressive. They claim to be liberal, but they're really repressive. And all of these sort of these you know, kabuki dance things they do are just designed to reveal that hidden repressiveness, right? So in that sense, there's a real common denominator between these two kinds of institutions, right? Now, the Charles Murray is on the other end, right? In the sense that Charles Murray, whatever you think about him, and as a social scientist, I'm not a fan, right? Is an actual social scientist, right? There is actual evidence. He's not just a pure troll, right? It, it's possible to have discourse, right? That is, there's, there's, there's a rational form of evidence and logic and causal claims that one can actually disagree with in a way that it's impossible. I'm going to get into to Charles Murray in a minute. I think okay, we'll get, example, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So I would put those on two sides, right? Now, the thing that's, that's kind of weird about this, right, um, is at least in the case of, of, I'll use Milo, right? And both Milo and, and Ann Coulter are both coming out of Berkeley, which I think is, is interesting, right? Mm -hmm. So I asked my Republican students at Johns Hopkins, like, would you guys ever invite Milo? And I got an interesting answer, right? One, they said, 
uh, people had come to them and asked them if they wanted Milo, and they say he's free, right? And it turns out because he's being paid by the Mercers, right? Mm-hmm. They're basically yeah, I sponsoring. To ask you about the Mercers? No, they're sponsoring. It turns out through some you know, inter- intermediates, right? He's basically being paid by the Mercers to go around and give all these uh, talks. Again, these talks, which are just the, the the desired output, is precisely being repressed, right? right? That's what they want, um, or to have some any disruption. Being repressed is the desired outcome. Is the desired right. outcome, right. right. So now the real question, though, is why are the Collins Republicans doing this? And there's an interesting um, book by uh, Amy Binder. And if you know this uh, book on um, on conservatives on campus, and it's basically a comparison of an Ivy League university, which is only thinly veiled, and, and, a, um, and a large public, uh, public university. And she makes a comparison between – the conservatives um, on uh, on both campuses. And the interesting example is at Harvard, right? A, they have mentors. They have Harvey Mansfield. They have other conservatives who are on the faculty who they can look up to who set a sort of style of what conservatism is, which is very booky. It's Straussian. There's a bunch of things that they associate with, you know, that. that and the, the, uh, the model there is that they are more intellectual than the liberals. That's why they're better, right? Um but again, it's partially because there's mentors there, right? And there's a tradition that they sort of socialize themselves into. At the other public university, the kids are sort of, the conservative kids are kind of like free range kids, right? There's nobody there. There's literally nobody on the on the faculty to mentor them, to tell them what conservatism is. So they're the, the intellectual equivalent of like latchkey kids whose parents left them at home with Fox News, right? And that's where they're getting their style of what conservatism is, right? And so when you think about things like affirmative action bake sales, right? Those right. things that are just, are literally a form of trolling that are just designed to piss off and are sort of juvenile, juvenile conservatism is more characteristic of that kind of institution, right? And Milo and, and Coulter and all of that come out of that, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions though is, so Berkeley, you would think, arguably given its status, right, would be closer to the Harvard model, right? Where the students, but it is also a big, even though it's a very elite state university, it is a big state university, right? Where there's arguably, and it's a very left state university. So you can imagine developing more of that kind of model of oppositional um, uh, conservatism in which Milo and Ann Coulter fit in. Right? Um, yeah. I, there was a great piece by Susan Glasser that I'm not going to sum up having not read much of it, uh, but it was about sort of the California style of conservatism in the Trump White House, which is very much what you see at Berkeley with this like opposition to the dominant liberal culture, trolling as a like the foremost intellectual goal. That's what Stephen Miller comes out of. That's what Steve Bannon comes out of. That apparently seems to be, and this was Southern California, but that, that seems to be the tradition the Berkeley uh, Republicans are imitating. There's a fascinating book or essay or something that I would love for someone to write about free speech at Berkeley specifically, given its historical context and the history You're of free speech. You're an editor. Speech. Make someone write it. Yeah. I'm, I, brought it to Chris, it. I, I brought it to Chris Jay before, uh, who edits yeah. our big idea section and sort of like, if you were an academic listening who has thoughts on this, I would love to edit those thoughts. I would love to write it, but I do not think I'm qualified. Um, but it is interesting to me that Berkeley was at the first heart of the, the original free speech movement and now appears to be at the, the heart of our fights over free speech So when today. people say, and this is, this is my historical ignorance. So when people say, oh, you know, Berkeley was the heart of the free speech movement and now they're against free speech because they canceled Ann Coulter. Does, I don't understand. I mean, what does that mean exactly? Like there was no free speech before the free speech movement? Like what, I, I mean... Well, a lot of, I mean, a lot of that was opposition to university paternalism. Right, right. Okay. right. Um, I would say, I think people don't understand the free speech movement. Yeah, I don't with. understand. Yeah. It, so. 
Right. So that was, I mean, that was the, right. the difference is that most universities, you know, across a number of dimensions, you know, so again, I, I would, you know, it got called the free speech movement, but it was connected also to things like visitation in dorms and the degree to which the university was in loco parentis across a wide range of issues of which one was things like who could be speakers on campus and stuff. And part of the consequence of that, and this gets to what Libby was talking about is, and why I think there's a problem as opposed to, uh, to Kevin's nihilism, um, is we've sort of, you know, we went from a thing where the university was going to control who was going to be speaking on campus, right. To a model where we put a, a significant amount of responsibility for that decision down to students, right? Where we say student groups are the ones who get to invite people, right? And my sense is if you're running a railroad that way, right, then you're more or less the university has to guarantee the physical security of whoever it is those student groups choose to, in, in, um, to invite, right? That's the regime, Right. Um, is they, you know, and now we could have a different regime. We get a regime where the university was entirely in control of who spoke to um, to students. Right. And they would. Now, of course, the problem with that is you'd get a much more not ideological conservatism, but universities would only want to invite safe speakers. In fact, this is one thing my students said is, oh, if you invite X, Y, or Z, right, the university won't like that just because it's controversy. I mean, all university administrations, whatever they are, and mine is no uh, exception, right, just hate controversy, right? Alumni don't like controversy. Everybody else doesn't like controversy, right? But controversy is part of our educational mission, which is why mm -hmm. the educational and the organizational maintenance incentives of universities our intention with one another, right? But again, I think that rule of saying students invite speakers, university protects them is a good rule, right? And the reason why this is a problem, right, is essentially the what has happened here is the university has given into a heckler's veto, right? It said, look, if somebody can show they'll show, they'll produce X amount of disruption, right? Mm -hmm. Then we'll cancel it because we'll say that we can't guarantee safety, which only creates an incentive to produce more disruption, right? Because you know you'll get the outcome you want. But uh, yes, and I understand why that's a problem. From the university's perspective, though, is, so is the implication of that critique that there is an, the infinite resources essentially should be deployed, like whatever level of disruption or violence, they'll just, I don't know, bring in more police and just do whatever it takes to make sure that Milo can say his shit because, because otherwise you're, it's a slippery slope of the heckler's veto. Yeah. I mean, now, one of it is, of course, that you're um, if you give in, you're immediately going to be producing the thing that you're claiming you're right. you're acting against. Right. That's basic game theory. Right. Uh -huh. So in part, it, it, you know, I don't actually think you need all that much repression. Right. All you really need in some of these cases is a video camera and the beginning of the talk, you say we're videoing this. Right. And if you're disrupting a speaker and keep us keeping us from doing it right or in the Claremont case they were outside of the Athenaeum. I've actually been in that in that space, right? They were outside the Athenaeum. You video it and you say, look, we're going to, I'm going to give you, I'm going to specify exactly what the punishment is, right? You can either leave now, right? You got 20 minutes to leave, or we're going to be going through this video and just expelling everybody who prevented a speaker from happening. But what right? if these are outside I think if you do that, that most like of these depressed. students don't want to get, are actually right. very highly risk averse. And they're only doing this because they think it's all a game that doesn't have any consequences. You make clear there's consequences and most of this disappears. And the only people who are going to be there will be people who are from off campus who I think you can, you can take off with campus police. 
I would say a couple of things to that. I think I, I sort of joined Kevin in being exhausted by this. I feel like we are spending a dramatic amount of our national time conversation and attention on isolated incidents at a couple of campuses, and I'm not sure what they're supposed to say about society or the broader state of American higher, higher education. Um, I am also interested in the idea of, like, what are these groups trying to accomplish by bringing these speakers in? Um, Richard Spencer spoke at Auburn yesterday. Uh, the alt-right white nationalist uh, leader and uh, did not get covered as much because he spoke. There were protests. Uh, he got off. I think there were a couple rock throwers toward the end, but he got off campus. It appears that it like the most notable thing that happened was he started talking about how black people shouldn't play football, which is not maybe the kind of thing you want to say in, in Auburn to <laughs> your audience on your side. Yeah. But I also just looked at this and I was like, who on earth, you know, regardless of deplatforming or, or heckling veto or whatever, like hecklers vetoing or whatever, like who thought giving this guy a platform at a university was like a valuable thing to do? I mean, and nothing, no coverage I saw of that. Who was did like, invite him? I don't know. I, I don't know. And I don't know if, you know, I did nobody, nothing. I did not have a lot of chance to look into it in depth, but like. I just can't come to a defensible case for inviting that guy, for inviting Milo. Like, what what idea are there airing so that there, is so But, but just so on that, urgent. I mean, there, there, there's two separate questions, right? Which mm-hmm. is, on the one, I think there's a legitimate thing, which is, what does this say about the state of campus conservatism, right? That with dozens and dozens of very smart conservatives, right, who would have added a lot to campus conversation. Again, the other point there is campus conversation that's really important, right? I There is... I don't really think there's a really out public conservative in arts and sciences at Johns Hopkins University. There are people I know who are kind of conservative, right? But there's nobody who's like the one who really, right? I mean, lots of campuses are like that, right? So the absence of that, of discourse in that, right, really does lead. I know lots of students who, you know, who just really need some sense of what the full range of intellectual possibilities are, and they're not getting that in universities, right? Now, that, you know, a good college or campus conservative things would be bringing that in in the way that, for example, the Federal Society does in law schools, right? Um, they do that, but these are all very intellectual. They're professors. They're talking on civil procedure. They're talking on preemption, right? They've got, they're adding a lot intellectually to that in- environment. And that's partially because the the way that Federal Society is organized, right? In a way that it seems like the culture of college Republicans is different. So there's one side, which is, why are these guys given the opportunity to invent, invite whoever they want? Why are they inviting these people? And that has something to do with the oppositional character of campus conservatism, which in part is a reaction to how excluded conservatives are from a lot of the, um, the, or, the, the organization universities. So that's the one side. But the other side, right, is then there's this other question of, um, of the – way that universities respond to it, right? And so I think you can simultaneously say Republicans and conservatives are stupid for inviting these trolls to campus in their name. And having done that, the university, if it wants to organize itself the way it says it wants to organize itself, has to guarantee their ability to speak. And that's why you use the example of Murray, who, while I disagree with him virulently in lots of stuff, right, is someone for whom you can have an intellectually you know, serious conversation with in a way you can't with Milo or the troll. So let's talk about Murray and we'll kind of <clears throat> get there by way of Richard Spencer. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, so this is more, and this is more to the question of how do universities operate? Why can't or shouldn't Auburn or any university say, uh, w- w- this, th- we are not a mere public square, right? This is not just simply a forum where anyone can come and talk. That's actually not what the university is about. 
we are founded on very deep and in some ways complex uh, historical and academic values that include certain kinds of normative values. White nationalism is contrary to those values. So no Richard Spencer, full stop. Just no. Like it's not, it is, there's a range of things that we think people should be exposed to. A lot of those things are conservative. White nationalism is not in them. We think that is an idea that is not worthy of discussion. You're asking me? Yeah. Oh, okay. I think the question of what I think the question of what the what the outer limit is yeah. is an is an important question, right? But again, one thing to be said is there's a question about um, who would you hire. I think that's a separate question, right? I think it's easier for the university to say for our faculty, right? Here's what we think the limit is, and that limit is in part determined by the disciplines into which we hire people, right? Um, to say, look, there are certain just kind of arguments that are outside of what we consider to be legitimate economics or social science or whatever it is, right? Um, I think there's a separate question about speakers. I don't know that you want to apply the same standard that you're talking about, which is the university has, you know, is in fact not just a forum. There's some substance of what it claims to speak for, Right. I don't know that you want to enforce that to the same degree on speakers, right? Um, to some degree, given, maybe though. What to, I mean, like I get that, you know, and but to some degree, I, I, mean, hey, I feel like I could posit pretty easily some level of offensiveness that nobody is would, offensiveness. Though I mean, offensiveness doesn't it doesn't seem like a very intellectual category. That's just a fact uh, determined by whatever anyone's offended by, and in fact, you know, lots of lots of things that people are offended by are things, in fact, intellectually, you'd be a good idea if they were exposed to. So I don't think offense is a very good standard. Offense is also not intellectual. But, but since white nationalism actually is, is the issue and is also very present in, for, and, is, and is, the, is the reason ultimately that I, I think Charles Murray is who he is and why the Charles Murray thing happened the way it happened, uh, uh, I think that's, there's a that's lot. Not theoretical. That's, I think that's there's, the a lot, there's a lot wrong with Charles Murray. I don't think he's a white yeah. nationalist. I think you're stretching the term okay. if you're calling him so, a white so, nationalist. So, I think I, I think there's a lot. Again, I'll, I'll say there's a lot wrong with him. Right. right. I, I teach. I've taught Murray stuff in the past. Yeah. I've read it pretty carefully. I think white nationalism has a very specific meaning, sure. and it's better not just to throw it at everybody whose positions on race you don't like. Fair enough. Um, and so that's why. Again, I think. The, the real question is whether or not it's possible to have serious intellectual discourse, right? Um, whether a person's making claims that are possible to, um, to hold them accountable to using the tools the university is supposed to be providing people with, right? And all of the basic evidence that Murray uses for his claims are the kind of things that you could question on the basis of what students learn in sociology and economics and everything else. And I think actually having to do that is a very valuable intellectual exercise, right? That, you know, it's a lot, you know, that's why you get trained in all those things. It's not just so you can be a technician, right? But that so you can deeply question people, you know, arguments of things like the bell curve, right? I mean, there's, there's a certain, like, I hear you, but there's a kind of, there's a kind of a clinical detachment to that argument in the sense that I think ultimately the, the anti Charles Murray argument, and again, like, Charles Murray's a smart guy. I've actually met him a couple times, which was weird, um, at AEI. Uh, I interviewed uh, Charles Murray at his house. Okay, once, super weird. Um, but 
like it or not, whatever Charles Murray's latest book says and whatever it was that he was planning on, whatever article he was saying, like irrespective of those, Charles Murray represents an idea, which is the genetic inferiority of African-Americans. I mean, that's, that's, that's why he is who he is. That's something, I mean, like that idea is- That's not true either. I'm sorry, I mean, I mean, you, it's you not- think I mean, it's no, wrong I mean, that's he, why he is what he is? No, I mean, he made his name with losing ground, which had no okay. basis in IQ well, either, Okay, right? first, but then- yeah. and, but then and the you know, I mean, so, I, you know, again, I think the bell curve intellectually was all messed up in lots of uh -huh. ways. Um, I, I do think it's fair to say that you know, again, again, I don't think it's a white nationalist book, and I think sure, let's that, take that off. You know, I mean, even you know, even there, it um, you know, someone like Richard Spencer, right, basically right. thinks that all of of inequality will we'll substitute right. racist so, for white nationalist. Right. So anyway, right. again, I, I don't want to be, I, I don't mm -hmm. like being put in a position of defending Charles Murray, right? But I think that's what his kind of argument is, is exactly the kind of thing that a student sh who's graduating from a university should be, especially in social scientists, should be prepared to systematically argue with because that's the kind of thing they're going to argue with out in the real world. And I don't think it does students any good to shield them from that and put them in a little hothouse where they never have to get exposed to ideas, especially ideas that they find offensive or problematic, right? And again, the clinical detachment is my point, right? One thing universities should be training people to do is, especially in ideas that they find offensive, to have that, that discipline to respond to them with some degree of clinical detachment. If universities aren't preparing people for that, then they're, mis, um, uh, then they're mispreparing their students, right? That's not the only way you should respond to something like Charles Murray, but it's part of the armament you should be training people up with. So I have a couple Murray things to jump in yeah. with. First is the most, I recently read, I think the most devastating paragraph I have ever read in a profile of anyone, which is the start of the Jason DeParle profile of Charles Murray from right around when I think the bell curve came out. And it's something like, the man who wants to end welfare is flying in a private jet at 30,000 feet over Aspen sipping champagne. And it is like truly just a stiletto of a sentence. Jason DeParle, also a new American no, yes, fellow. I say there's, I, I, it took me half of this conversation right. to remember his name. Anyway, and it, that, mention, that, that is neither guy, here nor really there, but it is, it is yeah. a wonderful profile. Yeah. And it has aged extraordinarily well. Right. I also think there's a difference between exposure and a platform. I think okay. no. I think if you were, there is a. I think I think the case that you have to be able to engage intellectually with arguments that you consider bad or offensive that are made in the language of academic inquiry in an academic detached way is is completely correct. I also think there's a difference between like we are going to read part of this book in class and de deconstruct the data and go through his theories. And we are going to, you know, as a university, offer this man a platform to express his ideas. That I'm not saying well, that he should that not, I'm not saying he should not be given a platform, but I'm saying that, that I think that blurring blurring exposure with platforming are, are, is in fact two different ideas. Right, but remember, I mean, the university, right, and again, so universities have multiple ways they bring people into campus, right? Mm -hmm. One is, we have like the arts and sciences brings a bunch of people, right? I have to say those are always the least interesting people who are brought to campus and not <laughs> yeah. accidentally because they're being brought by the administration, which again was something we can we can talk about later yeah, in that other there. that other mystery yeah. conversation we may be having. Uh, I was just gonna um, say we also need right. to wrap up our but, Charles Murray uh, right. argument so we but can the, argue about something um, else. But I guess I think the 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 point is that in fact they're not being invited by the university no, as such. No, right? I understand. We that. made a choice to have them invited by student groups right. and do this in a decentralized way, right? And so I think the idea the university is giving somebody a platform when a student group is, invi is inviting them, 
you know, again, but it's, would, would lead mean, to very stultifying kind of all the news coverage. So I think is the student, I think Charles the student Murray budget. at Amherst, right? I mean, yeah. whatever it was. I mean, it's always the university and the person whenever these things happen. Or at Berkeley, or if I could hire, if I could either give myself any assignment or hire a person to do a completely implausible job this spring, I want someone to go to the student council or the student government meetings where they determine funding for these groups for next year mm-hmm. and see if any of this comes up. Oh, a lot of them aren't giving aren't getting money in turn. Like I know our. College Republicans and college Democrats get very little money from the university, right? And that, that in part, I think, also makes them open to people who are going to give them free speakers, which right. I think is part of the problem here, right? Right. But I do think, I mean, at, at least at least places I've, I've covered and been, and I don't know if this is universal, like you have to be an approved group to use facilities for free, mm-hmm. for example, rather than rather than paying a rental fee. And at least places I've been, that, has, that process has gone through the student government. Um, so I'm interested if this in any way comes up, because as you say, it's not the university inviting these people, but that is the choke point of university approval that eventually trickles down to that. I'm not saying they shouldn't be approved. I'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm interested in whether this is going to become that battleground. Um, some some interest, some enterprising reporter should go to like the Berkeley student government meeting where they make these decisions mm-hmm. for, for the upcoming year. Well, unpaidstudentvox.com yeah. intern. We pay, we pay we, our interns. Thank you very uh, much. That is you. the law. Good for you. Um, a great example of how a law is not a law if it's never, ever enforced and people can constantly break it all the time. But good for you. We do too here at New America. <laughs> um, so... Uh, yes, and I, you are correct, I think. You're correct, Steve, that it is both important and necessary for people to be able to engage at Charles Murray's level to be able to refute, attack, deconstruct so complex sociological arguments on their own terms. Uh, I also think, a say, an African-American sociology student could fairly say, man, I'm the one who has to put all the emotion and the lived reality of racism aside in order to do that. And somehow my straight white uh, peers never have to. They never have to, you know, keep it together and engage some Charles Murray on his or her own terms when there's a like very legitimate reason to feel like a lot of that is just window dressing for racism. And like, like I have to sit on the other side of a podium with a like literal cross burner uh, and, and give him like the benefit of the doubt. I don't know that you have to give anybody, anybody a benefit of the doubt. That's or like, or keep, it on, keep it on the level, right? Well, like, but again, you gotta, well, it's all I, about I the mean, data. I'm even thinking if I'm prepared. Well, again, I think if you're, you know, if you're preparing an African-American student in an elite university, right, that's life. Right. The idea that he's going to be put in a situation where often he does have to defend his, you know, his equal dignity. Right. That's what he's going to have to do because we live in a racially stratified society. He's going to have to do that a lot. So he better get used to it. Right. So I don't know that we should that it does him. Any, would you say any, that to an African-American student like that? That's like I don't know. that would. Yeah. I think that I think unfortunately, again, if we if we believe we live in a racially stratified society mm-hmm. and we do. Right. Part of. Yeah, part of life, especially if you're going to be in public service or anything mm-hmm. else, right, is you're often going to be called upon to defend the equal dignity of your race, right? Um, and that's part of what being prepared in a liberal arts college should be getting right. you to learn how to do, right? And if, again, that's if, unfair. Not if you're a white person, though. Yeah, no. Because you'll never have I, to I do ne- that. I never, I, ne- I never said that, right? right but so. universities can't 
necessarily govern themselves or organize mm. themselves on the basis that they're sending students out to a wonderfully, perfectly unstratified. So that's an interesting society. question, right? I mean, that's what a lot of this. A lot of these arguments have boiled down to that, like where students have said, "Sure, but let's not let's make this world better. Like let's make the university a place." that's better than the world around us and let's actually like live our values and at least here let's try to try to kind of have a, a different set of standards about like what's appropriate what's i mean i think i think that was a lot of the push and pull even in some of the stuff that seemed a little crazy with the you know stuff at yale and all the rest of it that that were on this specific example it seemed extreme and kind of silly but i think the underlying argument was uh no actually like i don't have to i shouldn't have to kind of constantly uh, engage with the horrible injustice of the real world, like right here where I'm. Well, they're also not. I mean, they, I mean, the other thing is nobody's required to go to any of these speeches, right? True. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I think that's know. a strong case. I mean, yeah. that that honestly you know. is kind of where yeah. I where I sort of. I think in classroom, this is the opposite of what I was saying, where I think, I guess I will now argue the opposite point, which right. is like I'm required to read and, and analyze mm. this in class, and there is a speech. I can think this dude is not worth my time. And not be bothered and not go, or That's like two very different things. No, I think the point that about the marginal connection is valid. But again, if it like if in the public conversation, it's always just uh, UC Berkeley disinvites Coulter, which is the way it's said. Not you know, uh, student group marginally affiliated with UC Berkeley that can make decisions that the administration can't tell them what to do. Well, that's a problem. Do. The journalist because right? local Parentis of... was uh, disbanded forty five years ago. Disinvites Ian Coulter. You know, what I mean, so. <laughs> Right. Well, then again, you know, in the end, you know yeah. journalists ought to get better at writing what they're writing, right? Instead of using those shorthands, which are quite deceptive, right? Again, I think the, I mean, but I, again, I think the really important issue that's that's the hidden issue in all this, okay. right? Is why is it? What does this say about the quality of campus conservatism? Mm -hmm. Because I do no, think the comparison. Point between conservative organizing and law schools. Again, I wrote a whole book that was largely on the Federal uh -huh. Society, right? Um, the culture of the Federal Society. In fact, <clears throat> the Federal Society, I have a great quote by one of the founders of the Federal Society in the book who says that when they were designing the Federal Society, they explicitly designed it in contradistinction to the Dartmouth Review, mm -hmm. right? Again, when the Dartmouth Review was one of the earliest examples of this sort of, you know, um, strategy of inciting the left, right? They were famous for knocking over, you know, these shanty towns and on campus and stuff, right? And actually, I think, uh, you know, and lot, you know, Laura Ingram, I think I, it was actually involved in the Dartmouth Review, Dinesh D'Souza, right? Those right. are all people who we associate with that style of conservatism, right? Well. Yeah, so, but the point is that is a very distinct style of conservatism, mm -hmm. right? Of which the federal society model is a also a distinct version, right? But on most campuses, that what I think it was federal society style conservatism at the undergraduate level is missing except at a few elite institutions, right? So, so at Princeton, right, they have the James Madison program. Robbie George runs it, right? That's a good example where the conservative students there are not having to engage in free range conservatism, right? Mm -hmm. Picking it up where they, mm -hmm. where they get it from, right? And I think that's why people who often protest the existence of these conservative centers on campus mm -hmm. are missing the point that right. often one thing at least they're producing is a much more intellectual and less just confrontational, you know, um, and Coulter style of conservatism. Um, that is, they actually fit with the intellectual mission of the university rather than subverting it. Right. I think the, the sort of the troll style here that, that we've come back to a couple of times 
is why I sort of roll my eyes at things like the Berkeley protest over Milo, because literally the only reason you invite him is to provoke that reaction. You want the speech to have to be canceled. You don't want him to come in and say, like, probably vacuous and offensive things and everybody to go home bored. Like, you want you want that reaction. So don't feed the trolls. On the other hand, it's easy to say don't feed the trolls if you're not the one being trolled all the time. I mean, it's, it's sort of uh, – I think Twitter is in some ways an analogy for everything in, in politics and life. And it's it's easy on Twitter to say, oh, just ignore it. And it's like, okay, yeah, like you just ignore the like thousands of strangers who have a direct line to your phone to tell you that you're ugly and should never have been born and should throw yourself off a cliff like on, on the regular, which does not happen to me often but has happened. So I can't, you know – I would like to write a high on the mountain. This is counterproductive memo to those students, and I, I strongly believe that it is. But I also do understand where that where that impulse comes from. The problem is, I do think we're stuck in a really bad um, perpetuating cycle of the troll mode being the dominant mode on a, a shocking number of these campuses. The finding of people who are excellent targets, like, and then the continual continual inviting of them to create this kind of outrage to advance their agenda in the first place. But I mean, the other point is that the universities are also not. Somebody's not advising these left protesters very well. Just right. as, just as the conservatives who are inviting them are clearly not getting, you know, the, there's a whole tradition, in some sense, of organizational strategy on the left, right? That somebody ought to be teaching these left protest kids, right? I mean, because part of this is this particular style of no platforming is now kind of gotten integrated into the repertoire. That's why there's a, there's an epidemic quality to these particular kind of protests, right? Because they enter into the repertoire of things that people, tools that people have, right? And if you don't have any other tools, that's the one you're going to pick up when you see somebody like an asshole like Milo getting invited. You're going to pick up that tool because you saw it used at Claremont or whatever, right? Um, but somebody ought to say, look, there's other tools that might be much more useful for us actually um, achieving what we want than these ones that just play into the hands of this other side. Now, to some degree, I have a little bit of a pox on both sides attitude toward this. But also, ideologically, I'm on neither, I'm on neither of these ends. So I think they kind of both deserve each other. Um, but you know, I'm a little more worried about the people on the left and why is it that they, you know, it seems intellectually they should know enough or somebody should tell them enough to tell them they should get a broader range of, of possible responses than the ones they're doing that just give the right what they want, right? That seems really stupid. And, um, and again, I blame the faculty more than I blame the students, right? Somebody should have taught them that and they apparently haven't. I'm somewhat more worried about the mainstreaming of white nationalism than I am about college students being immature uh, in their protest tactics. But I, I, I agree that there's certainly no one in this situation is handling it in perhaps the way that colleges would ideally want. I also, unfortunately, have to run in a minute. Do we want to do chat and then you guys are? We'll do about chat and then we'll just go. We'll just okay. go. Okay. Uh, uh, pop culture <laughs> chat. I'm one episode behind on the Americans. I'm no. I'm 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 caught up. Uh, so I was I was the same one episode ahead on the Americans, so, but I'm not. Uh, so I don't know if we can talk about that. Other than to say, I was like a little worried. On uh, episode three or four, it felt like it was stalling a little bit. No, this is exactly then, what I want to talk to you but about. But then so. uh, I was sort of like, it's all good, but I feel like I've seen this before. And it, it, it the show feels like it needs to move. Yes, um, I will not give anything away. There is not a big twist coming as far as, as, far as I would say that you have not seen. So I, I have also that sentiment about this season. Um, and it is, it is a little concerning to me. It feels like... 
I think we are like teetering on the precipice of whatever big explosion mm. it is that is going to carry us through the second half of the season and the final season. Um, I don't know what that's going to be, but it feels like a lot of storylines have fizzled and it doesn't have that sort of like really propulsive high stakes suspense, which is not to say that it was always action packed. It often was not, but like yeah. it, it just doesn't feel as tense. Well, except the program is geographically more diffuse, right? Because now right. it's got this whole Russian thing. And part of it is, I mean, this is also inherent in that in the genre, right? Which is these long, you know, multi-season programs mm -hmm. should have space for things where things don't look like they're really mo mm -hmm. moving ahead, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, you even go back to The Wire. There were mm -hmm. lots of episodes of The Wire where there was lots of people just doing stuff, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. even in retrospect, you'd look back and say, oh, well, that mm -hmm. stuff they were doing that didn't look like it was moving you anywhere was actually moving you somewhere. But part of that's what you're buying into when you buy into this genre of, of program, right? right. Is there's I agree. Yeah. My, my analogy is <laughs> in season five of Mad Men, which to me had that same feeling. Mm -hmm. And then the last four episodes of season five of Mad Men are among the best sequence right. in television ever produced. That's when, spoiler alert, Lane Price kills himself. Joan right. is prostituted out to the Jaguar people. Yeah. Uh, it's a, a phenomenal stuff. sequence. But this, what people forget is the season up to that was a lot of, sort like, of the, yeah. what's happening? Why are they talking about these nurse killings in Chicago? Like the, But this season, to me, feels like it is influenced by the ethic, the ethos of binge-watching in a way that previous seasons have not. So I have, I have a thought about that. So two thoughts. Spoiling my thoughts, I'm going to write on the site for next week, but uh, I will preview them to you guys first. So I think... I will say, I think the last two episodes that I've seen, so this was the episode from, uh, uh, it was called Crossbreed, I think, so yes, not the one, yeah. was great. Yes. So, was that the one with the lab and the, yeah. uh, the murder? So uh, that, that was closer to the beginning. Yeah. So this, okay. this, was, this is the one where the, like, where Olev arrests the guy oh. and puts yep. him okay, in the, cool. yeah, I don't, so I, good. Like, just, like, not, subject to the same critique, but so, like, finally... Everything that's great about the Americans, I didn't really care because they were just like killing it emotionally mm -hmm. and story-wise. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I, so I feel like they have this Breaking Bad problem, right? So we've oh, all I seen. Just, I just started Breaking Bad. Okay, yeah. you guys talk. Oh, you haven't seen it? No, I'm on episodes. Oh, okay. I just okay. started. I just finished the first right. eight episodes last okay. week. I know. All right. I'm sorry. Well, then but I just, like, no, I just go, can't, no, no. I, go ahead and spoil it. It's my fault. I believe there are no spoilers for things that ended three years ago. So here's so the, the problem essentially is that uh, I don't think this is really spoiling it. Uh, uh, at some point the brother-in-law finds out that uh, Walt White is I'm a bad shocked. guy. I'm right? shocked. I'm okay? shocked by this. All right. Okay, so, so and, that, and that is the, like, pivot point, right? Mm -hmm. So it all leads up to that. And then from that point forward, it is this just absolute gut-wrenching sprint toward mm -hmm. the conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so you have this same dynamic yes. now with Stan Beeman. Yes, exactly. Where I'm just exactly. kind of like, so... Like it just, I'm waiting for the 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 Breaking Bad moment where he like you you know you see him find out and it's like dun dun dun. So you just gave me a theory that I did yeah. not have before, which is that the Americans does not do things like other shows ever. Yeah. I wonder if whatever is going on with this woman Stan is seeing mm. leads to Philip having to give himself away to Stan in order to save Stan from this situation. And Maybe. so we are not leading to a Stan puts the pieces together and finds out, but Philip, who is increasingly distant from his job, and yeah. it's not going to, I don't think this is Philip defecting. I think this is Philip, like, trying to be a human being. I don't know. Yeah, I, isn't this, it the daughter? I mean, they're theory. setting the daughter up. They're setting the, the daughter pivot. up. They, 
Or Henry. I don't Unless know. My boyfriend has strong theories that Henry is going to be the, is going to give them away to I just, Stan. I don't, Henry like, I wonder if, are, is, is one of them going to have to kill the other one? Is Margot Martindale going to kill Philip, which could definitely happen because she's stone cold. She totally would. And Frank Langella, like, who's so good. Oh, so he's really good. good. He's They're so also good. I said so that last episode I saw was just fanta- so fantastically good. They're, like, half the scenes didn't even have any dialogue in them. They're all operating on three levels emotionally. They, it can't go on forever. But I oh, yeah, I would to... say, I don't want this season to end. I don't yeah. want this show to end. Like, I could yeah. watch them read from the dictionary for 50 minutes a week. Right. Like, this is not a critique of the the, the enjoyability of the yeah. Americans. But yeah, we need does. a program with Frank Langella as a um, student loan processor. Something. That's yeah. what we I I think that. He would sit there <laughs> with his, like, enormous hands. He does half his acting with his hands. Yeah. You know, he kind yeah. of does that thing. So, yeah. all right. Uh, I'm sorry, Libby, I am on thank you very much. today, but you guys argue about the end of college. I We're look forward to listening to it on the podcast. You have to listen. Are you a normal? Do you listen to our podcast ever? Do you go back and listen? I can't. I cannot stand the sound of my voice, so okay. I will sometimes listen. Fast to forward parts. to this part yep. of it. Okay. You have a lovely voice. Right. Oh, thank you. Have right. fun. Take I care. Um, all right, third segment. Thank you, Libby. Uh, so, Steve, you said to me once um, about my book, The End of College, and, and I, maybe you were talking about the book or like the larger uh, body of things that I like to say. That you said I'm in the 99th percentile of college professors in terms of uh, agreeing with you, but I still think you're wrong. So let's talk about that. Okay. So uh, you mean, what did I mean by that? Yeah. Or, well, so if I think about what I, you know, now we're having a real meta conversation. We're just having a yeah. conversation about my attitudes uh, toward Kevin Carey. Yes. Um, so I think I meant that universities generally tend to under um, uh, undervalue <laughs> undergraduate education, right? They don't emphasize it. They don't uh, have a lot of room for right. innovation um, in the basic organizational mode. I think that's the, you know, again, I think what, what Kevin Carey, is, what you know, as they say in sociology, what he's a signifier of mm-hmm. right here. I think they're a signifier of the idea that universities are organizationally brittle. They're unable to, uh, to adapt. Um, and there's something inherently self-serving about universities, right? The universities mm-hmm. have gotten into a mode where they are comfortable for the insiders. They found ways to essentially serve themselves rather than serve their customers, right? right. So that's the – so – and that there's a lot to that, right? Um, so I think in terms of the critique, I'm very close to you. Uh, I worry that I, the other the other thing I associate carryism with, mm-hmm. right, is basically that we've had all these governance changes in K twelve, and they're awesome, and we got to do more of that with higher ed. Maybe, maybe not, but okay, right, okay. But I think you know that, that right. would be, maybe that's primitive. I'm pleased to have an ism. In maybe that's case. primitive k- uh, yeah. uh, carryism, right? right? Um, but that a lot, that, a lot of that, a lot of school, right? A lot of that sort of the revolution in outcomes based. Now, part of it is that. I think the difference is that I'm actually sort of an ed reformer, mm-hmm. um, but I don't actually like a lot of the accountability regime. I'm much more uh, uh, sympathetic to the choice side. Mm-hmm. So I'm very skeptical of the top-down central planning elements of ed reform, and that's per- precisely the thing I'm worried is going to end up creeping into higher ed. Um, and the final thing is, I think it's hard to imagine doing a lot of the things you're talking about without empowering university administrations, which are, if anything, the right. only thing worse than the faculty. Yeah, th- are we, our, our listeners should understand Steve is a, a, a 
skeptic of university administrators. Could we say that? I'm not yes, gonna, I think absolutely you can say. You're tenure, that, right? You're yeah, good? I, have, okay. I can say that. Uh, although I'm up for promotion to full professor now, so maybe this isn't a great, great idea, right? <laughs> it's not that Johns Hopkins are any better mm-hmm. or worse. They're probably slightly better than lots of mm-hmm. universities. In fact, Johns Hopkins, at least up until recently, um, one of the things that was characteristic of it is we didn't have as much central administration, mm-hmm. right? That was one of the things that faculty liked about it compared to other universities, even though we were less resourced than other peer universities, which is true, right? Because we generally were dependent on external um, right. uh, research funding rather than endowment, right? Number one, we had less funding every year since like the 70s, right? John Although that's a little deceptive in that that includes like the med school, right? Mm-hmm. And the med school- But the other ones well, got, do too, got, so- Right. Well, but even then, right? I mean, arts and sciences is if you if you separate that mm-hmm. out, right? And the med school for us could be like to some degree on the other end of the moon, um, uh-huh. organizationally, right? So we're under resourced, but part of it is you, know, you said less BS than you would have at lots mm-hmm. of other universities, right? And part of it, all every university, just the BS is growing. The organizational infrastructure is growing for lots of really complicated reasons. Um, at the expense of the faculty, right? The faculty, for the most part, in most universities is not growing while the administrative superstructure is. And I think that is a really big problem for which more centralized control is is, is pushing in the wrong direction. So... uh... And I would say administrators have exactly the wrong intellectual incentives, which goes back to the point we were talking about before. They care a lot about the university brand. They're hostile to um, to controversy, mm-hmm. right? And so empowering them is empowering the people who have that particular organizational incentive. So carryism, I'm just going to keep using that because I love it, uh, doesn't, I don't think is... Uh, it doesn't rest on a theory of empowered university administrators to uh, uh, tell the faculty what to do as a like a as a positive mode of change and reform. Um, I th- I mean my my parents were college professors. I heard plenty of horror stories from my dad. You know some some of which like in retrospect I think he might have just been kind of a crabby professor. Uh, but I think also like there was all kinds of stuff that he just. Things he told me about like deans and provosts and stuff he had to put up with that was just outlandish. Um, so, I mean, there are, you know, I think there are some interesting examples of someone like, you know, Michael Crow, the president of Arizona State, also full disclosure board member here at New America, um, who clearly has been able to like do a lot of interesting stuff at his university because he's structurally in a position to make a lot of decisions that not, can't always be made elsewhere. So the like faculty governance doesn't really exist there and or shared governance doesn't really exist there. And um, he has a lot of leeway and he's been doing like all kinds of things. And this, I think, like authentically remade the university in some interesting ways. Um, so like, but like my argument goes- Very few university presidents like Michael Crow. True. I don't know if we want to have a- uh, a general rule or norm that presumes most universities right. are going to, in fact, Michael Crow is precisely in some ways the opposite of what most university presidents are like. Right. But, but like, but my point is also not a whole ton of Steve Tallis's out there who, in addition to doing all the scholarly work that I'm sure you've had to do to get a promotion to full professor also said, you know what? Like a lot of these semester and DC programs are educationally bereft. We know how to do it. It just takes like work and organization. And so let's do all those things. Um, uh, I don't think you can rely on that as like a, 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 a 
a mode of change. I mean, it can't be enough to just say, give faculty space to do that if they want to, because we have that now. I mean, you did that. Mm, well, I mean, that's a pretty unusual, I mean, again, there, there's a very unusual organizational space there to do mm -hmm. it, right? Universities, I think, could do a lot more where they incentivize faculty to come up with new organizational forms, right? So again, I think this is a case, now within again, the again I, within the university, <laughs> that is, I, you know, that is even within the structure of 120 credits and students pick what classes you can do, right? There's a lot of stuff if you allow faculty to talk to, to sort of coordinate with each other about how they want to fit those things together. If the university thinks it'd be a good idea to release kind of decentralized, in a, you know, potential for innovation. There's a lot you could, I think you could do right now. And part of it is, I think the ideas that are going to come out of faculty themselves. If you give them the space to do it are going to be a lot better than at least the kind, the kind of ideas I see come out of university administrators. And I've been at a bunch of universities, right. Are almost always have baked, not very intellectual, very trendy, right. Because that's the word, the worlds they come out of, right? Especially university administrators are increasingly coming out of worlds that are are separated, right, from the rest of the university, right? From the real intellectual part of the university, right? They're trained, they go to totally different meetings. Um, and, you know, again, I don't want to empower those people, right? Now, again, part of the problem is that, again, the faculty don't want to do the work, mm -hmm. right? And they don't want to do the work not because they're just selfish or right. whatever it is, right? But because they're mobile <coughs> factors of production now, mm -hmm. right? Again, when I first started in, you know, 20 something years ago in, in this business, right? There was still a lot of faculty that came around on the, you know, who had gone to university on the assumption they would go to a university wherever it was. And that's just where they would be for their entire career, right? And if you do that, then you have a lot of incentive to invest in the institution itself, Right. Um, because you're going to internalize a lot of those benefits, mm -hmm. right? But increasingly, you know, and this is partially a function of universities saying that they only give raises to people who get outside offers, right? The universities in some ways are complicit in the marketization of their faculty that causes the faculty not to invest in public goods in the university, right? So if you want to deal with some of this problem, you have to deal with that, right? Um, of basically saying that the university is only going to give raises to people who've got external market value as opposed to internal market value. I believe you when you say that all the good ideas would come from the faculty and not from university administrators. I 100% think that that's true. Um, I'm skeptical that the it's just that the faculty are need to be uh, unleashed or given space to to bring up that they that they if only they were allowed to they would do a much better job of well again I, I think I think or, it's a model of whether or not um you know I I think you have to I mean some of these people are lazy right you have to give them mm -hmm. templates for what you know, innovation looks like, right? right? You have to give them some sense that, you know, there's some, you know, teaching relief or some other, you know, kind of incentive to say, we're not going to tell you what you should be coming up with, right? But we don't think the way we put together 120 credits, right, in this mm -hmm. university is necessarily the best way to to do it, right? Um, and that we do this with majors and all this other stuff, right? There's probably a lot more room for play in the joints, Um then there is, you know, now, now again, the other thing is, you know, we ought to have a lot more new universities. I think this is something we agree we on, go. right? Yeah, so, and, and right. that, you know, one thing we know from organizational 
theory, right, is it's really hard to change existing institutions, right? Most right. innovation comes, if at all, through market entry, right? Um, and this is, in some sense, the great failure of, of educational philanthropy, right, mm. is that in, you know, 100-some years ago, educational philanthropy came in the form of creating new universities, right? Johns Hopkins, right, got created with a very new organizational form based on German research university, right? Because philanthropists were willing to say, you know, we're not just going to work in the margins and try and get leverage, right? Mm -hmm. We're just going to go and create whole new things, right? Um, what if the Gates Foundation had done that, right? What if, you ten, know... So 10 years ago, 10 years ago now, I think it's about 10 years ago, I wrote uh, one of my very first columns for the Chronicle of Higher Education, which was structured as an open letter to Bill Gates. And, and this was the Gates Foundation was just getting into funding higher education. And basically what I said was, look, you just spent 10 years trying to reform K-12. You learned that it was really, really difficult. And uh, it's hard to change these places. Let me tell you, it's actually even harder to change at colleges and universities. They have way more resources and way more autonomy than the K-12 schools. Skip the process of being frustrated for 20 years and just go right now to creating Gates University. Just do it right now. Gates University, it's what all the philanthropists in the 19th century did, but you have information technology so you can both build like a, a physical place and a, a, like a virtual place. And instead, they spent that time, uh, I guess, giving money to people like me, which they should keep doing if any of them are listening here on the podcast. Uh, no, actually, do, they should hire we Kevin great work. to start a new university. We do great work with your money, and it's greatly appreciated, so <laughs> I don't mean to imply otherwise. But um, I'm still, like, I, don't, I still think most of those things are true. You know, I mean, but again, I think part of that is I've also written on philanthropy. Right. And, you know, there's a kind of cult of leverage in philanthropy. Um, uh, but the Gates Foundation doesn't need leverage. Right. They've got enough resources that they can just produce the thing they want without trying to incentivize or leverageize some other actor into doing what they want. And in general, most of these universities don't want to do that, right? Um, and it's hard to use resources to leverage people into doing things they don't want to do. It's better to give them resources to help them achieve something they do want to do, right? And there are people who do in universities who do want to create new kinds of institutions, even so inside. You know, in some of these cases, you don't have to create entirely new universities. You can create new colleges inside universities with different kinds of norms, mm -hmm. right? That's an organizational form you can do where sure. you can use a lot of the, the apparatus of the university. Yeah, if, if the med school at Hopkins could be on the moon, then therefore something else new could be at Hopkins that's also essentially completely different in its own thing, right? Right. You know, and 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 existing universities have the fantastic advantage of uh, brand names that everybody trusts, probably more than they should, but they do. Um, uh, they're already uh, immune from any regulatory scrutiny if you're a, a good one, right? So Hopkins could set up any new thing it wants, and the chances of its accreditor giving it shit about it are exactly zero. There's no way that would ever happen. And three, all access to public subsidies, right? So they can kind of tax preferences, all those things. Um, you could set up a brand new, like, you know, so the, the, in my book, I talk about the Minerva Project, which is, like, you know, pretty well known, I guess, yeah. in our circles. But also, you know, one of those things that's interesting because, you know, everyone knew about it right away. And the most interesting thing about it is that it still basically is what it said it would be. And it's doing all those things, which like FYI doesn't happen all the time right. with highly touted startups that get like Atlantic cover stories written about them. Half the time they flame out or they end up, particularly in education, 
right. a lot of the like highly touted new people that are going to try to like actually change education, they tend to not do that. They tend to find out that the education part is really hard and they're like, oh, maybe we could like, I don't know, sell platform services to something. Minerva is still basically doing everything they said they would do. Like their students are going from one major city to another. I mean, I just spent a couple of days with their uh, general counsel about a month ago, just kind of updating on stuff. Um, and, they, you know, they are fiercely devoted to really, really difficult, high standard undergraduate instruction. Um, but I think it's really, and the the real thing is though, even with all those advantages of the existing, you know, fixed cost of, right. You know, it's hard to do big innovations like that inside of a university, even though there's lots of advantages to doing so. Right. I think, you know, the, the, the way it would happen would be, you have a faculty member who had such status inside a university, right. That they could say. Hard for bad reasons, not for good reasons. Right. Like, you know, saying like, sometimes. Right. Sometimes, you know, just because they have a large reputation or whatever right. it is. Right. We can say, look, I want to go and, you know, if I was at Johns Hopkins, I want to go start basically a satellite campus for the last two years of their undergraduate education in Annapolis or somewhere. Right. And right. we're going to take a hundred of our best students and we're going to put them really through our uh, through the paces. Right. Or 200 or whatever it is. Right. You know, you could do that. It's just that's a really hard because you're you're operating outside of the existing organizational structure of the university, right? Now, again, if you've got a large donor, you have to have a lot of things that fit together simultaneously to do that kind of innovation, and that's why the change that happens is going to happen more through Minerva, right? Without that, doesn't have a lot of um, inherited organizational legacy stuff. I mean, but it. it- all that stuff exists, but it doesn't have to exist, right? I mean, again, like like I don't deny that that it actually is very difficult given the way universities are, but they could be different. I mean, they could, if you had the right leadership or whatever, you don't you're you're not like physically constrained from doing stuff. I mean, I mean, Minerva was Minerva cost twenty million bucks. That was the startup, right? Which is a lot of money, but not in university dollars. It's not a lot of money. Right. And they got the whole thing going and they charge $20,000 a year in tuition. And I mean, and that's, you know, they kind of don't need to charge that much. I mean, what's interesting about Minerva is they're, uh, they are not using information technology to attack the existing higher ed business model on the scale side, which is what most people do. They're attacking it on the, we don't have to pay for all that other useless shit side. Right. We don't have a research arm. We don't have a campus. We don't have a football stadium. Right. And it turns out if you do all that, you only need $20,000 a year. Right. Now, I mean, again, I think the one issue that, and this is the last thing in attacking carryism that I I would say, right, is, you know, sometimes there's a a suggestion that cross subsidy is a bad thing. Right. But the, you know, the cross subsidy for research, right, the the subsidy for research has got to exist somewhere. Right. I think in general, the and the fact that we have we have a subsidy for research uh. that doesn't involve so again I I've had a lot of interaction with British higher education right and there almost all the money for research especially in the social sciences comes through one pipe right uh. and you have to get a grant to do anything right um uh, or you're kind of on your your own right the fact that that faculty at least in, in R1 universities have a built-in 
subsidy, right? And the right. fact that their their teaching loads, right, has a problem, right? Because not all of them are actually using it for that purpose, right? right? But it also means that you can go and get enough time to actually do research without having to go to this or that often very small number of pipelines in order to get support, right? And again, the place in the university where that is true, like in public health, right? right? Where they often have a culture of eat what you kill and there's no hard money, right? Those are places where often they're all dealing with very narrow funder-driven questions, which right. I think are often, that's a very problematic model too. Now, the degree to which universities are also cross-subsidizing minor league sports um, mm -hmm. is a huge problem, right? And maybe at some other one, you'll have me back in and we'll talk about how, despite my love of college sports, and I love college sports, right? It's a cancer on every university. It is. Um, and there is a case where, and, and that cross-subsidy though is connected to the business model of universities, right? Um, and it is also connected to why it is that universities, including public universities, are so much better supported in the United States than they are in Europe, right? Because they have a non-educational connection to the larger citizenry, right? Uh, hmm. Whereas you go to places like France, right? The universities often seem very far and very distant from hmm. their local communities. Now, it's weird that we created that connection through minor league sports, right? Um, but that is how we, and so this is, is a, one of those problems that it'd be better if we had some other solution for, for how do you embed these institutions um, culturally in their society. Mm -hmm. But this is the one we created. And in fact, it's much more successful than the mechanism we've created in most other universities and other systems, which are quite under-resourced. Yeah, it's, I mean, side note, uh, it is interesting how different the United States is regionally in that respect, right? Like, so I I went to a SUNY campus where they don't yeah. care about sports. There's uh, there's no, I mean, and you know, like good university system, uh, lots of people go to college and get degrees there and learn things and all the rest of it. And uh, at an affordable price and there's no football teams, there's no basketball teams. And it, it, they tried to get one in my alma mater. It was a catastrophe. There's one in Buffalo now, uh, right? Khalil Mack came but, from Buffalo. But that's right? a bad idea. They yeah, that's a terrible that. idea. Yeah, no, they should cancer. never, they should, they never, should never have done it if right. you didn't already right. have it. Right? Um, but then you go to, you know, Ohio, I also went to grad school at Ohio. You think about like in the South and places like that. Clemson. It's, it's like the most important thing in the entire state. Yeah. Of anything, right? Yeah. Is, it's is absolutely the, true. I mean, and South Carolina, was my, where is my mom from, yeah. right? Clemson. University of South Carolina, right? They're like they are. They are yeah. religious. You can't overstate. And so, you, right. depending on where you come from, you either are so aware of this that you almost aren't aware, or you're like, "What?" You know, you actually underestimate how important it is. All right. So, so I, I, I think you are correct that the like the two plus two teaching load at a good liberal arts college or university is a sort of uh, socially benign exploitation, right? So, like students are. Are, we're talking about the cross subsidies, right? So you've got people paying a lot of money to go to college, but even the, and the tuition is going to pay the professors. The professors only teach half the time, and they spend the other time in doing doing right. doing research that does not have uh, uh, immediate market value, and that's like super important to support research that doesn't. Well, have well, the value. truth is, there's all kind of indirect. I mean, I mean, it's right. it's hard to even make that right because universities are full of cross subsidy, right? Mm -hmm. There's cross subsidy from alumni, right, where that yeah. money is going into. There's cross-subsidy, actually, from the people who are bringing in research grants, the people who aren't, right? That's all your indirect cost stuff, right, is, you know, somebody in physics who's getting a 40% indirect cost or whatever it is from NSF, right, 
is implicitly subsidizing the guy in English who doesn't ne who never gets um, right. a research grant, right? So universities are full of cross subsidy, right? And cross subsidy is not such a bad thing, right? In fact, it's often you know again if you say you know I think a lot of universities ought to move away from the model mm -hmm. of just everybody getting a two two, right? Um, mm -hmm. Just like yeah, I, I'm not sure I would get rid of tenure. But I do think there's a good argument for getting rid of the automatic indefinite 2-2, right? If you've, you're a faculty mm -hmm. member who's gotten to, you know, 65 or 70 and they're not writing anymore, right? It's not obvious to me that that person shouldn't have to have a 3-3 load, right? Yeah, and that would be doing it, right? I what? mean, if you don't want to retire since we can't make you retire anymore. Right. We can't make you retire and we can't get rid of tenure. I think it's a good argument that mm -hmm. um, you shouldn't be able to, to you know, to – free ride, right? Um, mm. And again, that, that's an incentive, right? If you can get to, you know, 70 or something and not have to write and just show up, roll in, teach a couple classes, often with a TA, right? Why would you ever retire, right? right. I'm not sure I, you know, I mean, it's a lifetime Sounds annuity. a good deal to me. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things. I think the, the exploitation is becoming harder to swallow as prices and debt go up, right? So it just seems like we're asking students to pay more. You know, or like we're asking them to borrow money in order to. But it's not clear that that cost inflation, again, if you look at it, is really coming out of the faculty so much as it's coming out of the administration. Marginally, now, again, I mean, I mean, but it's still there. Like, yeah. like whether or not, whether or not it. I mean, it, it, if let's say you have the subsidy and it's not and it's not gotten any better, it's not gotten up, and actually all the new money is going to a bunch of administrators who are all overpaid buffoons or whatever, and that's the margin. That's the right. debt. It's still debt. Like you're, yeah. it's still all part of a whole that the university is paying. Yeah, for. but like just the impression not, though that that's the reason why tuition is spiraling. I, I don't. I think know it's, it's not true. the reason. No, I know it's not. But 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 also from the student's perspective, who cares? I still have. I still right. owe forty grand, and I didn't. You know, what I'm saying like it's still right. like the university because it chose not to solve this other problem. It's all part of what I'm paying for. Like in, in a way. So 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 one is that. Two is like more sympathy if if there was a sense that the universities were bringing some more discipline to the, to who gets it. Right. You know, and exactly what you just said. So I agree with that. Third, is it strategically a good idea to put yourself to have a crop subsidized business model in a world where competition is always about finding cross subsidies and incumbent and attacking them? Right. I mean, isn't that the, you know, I didn't go to business school, but isn't that what everyone always does? You sort of find the one thing that the big old conglomerate, like, ma is making all its yeah, money I mean, on. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, that that's why. That's what Minerva's In some ways, the crop, right. The cross the right. But that's why, in some sense. Now, of course, the one of the, one suggestion of that is, is the effect of getting rid of cross-subsidy is in many cases either to create the underproduction of something, right? Or to have to move to a model of explicit subsidy, right? Mm. So again, we could move to a model where we explicitly had some separate revenue source that we're using to fund research, especially in areas that don't immediately have an obvious funding source like public health or something right. like that, right? I think there's a lot of reasons to think that would have a lot of problems with it because it um, you know, it, it creates incentives for often for very narrow um, questions mm -hmm. and not often ones that are very innovative. And now, again, there's lots of parts of the university that are producing what I view as very problematic or not very interesting or not very useful research. Right. So maybe there's not a loss. 
there. Um, but I do think there's a the problem organization with moving from cross-subsidy to explicit subsidy that just saying, oh, isn't it great that Minerva came in and cut it out and didn't do any of that? Well, in some sense, it's not paying the freight you know, of society as a whole right now, maybe we ought to be spreading the cost of this off of universities and onto society as a whole. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like in the medical context, we often do that through the way we subsidize hospitals mm. through all kinds of complicated, you know, mechanisms too. Right. Um, but it, it seems a little problematic just to celebrate how awesome it is that they're, you know, cutting through all those cross subsidies when in some sense they're free riding and not paying, some part of the share of the research costs at university that the universities are paying on behalf of society. No, and I, I mean, I'm, I, I cite Minerva and I obviously I think it's interesting what they're doing. And I think they're a high quality organization and I'm glad they exist, but it's also just kind of a, of course someone was going to do this. You know, I mean, it's not a like, yay, as much of a, like they did it. It's, it can be done. It will be done. There could be, there could be, 10,000 organizations like that easily. There's the demand for them. They don't cost that much to create. The They will cost less to create over time as people sort of like figure out how to do stuff and more things become available. And that, that is the sort of, in some ways, somewhat hidden thesis of my book. And I say just because I have to keep telling everyone that when you have to keep explaining to everyone what your book really said, you realize you've made some errors in right. terms of how you framed and wrote your book. Well, you know, but I, but, I think but Minerva, like it's I, new I organization the, creation. Right, but I think the case that Minerva is where the, you know, the big creative destruction is going to happen. And I think you were pretty clear that that's not the part of the market. That's like the last part of the market that really is going to get really creative destructed, right? Um, it's the bottom, right? That's going to get, yeah. that's going to, you know, where, it's where mostly, you're going to yeah, come out. Where which you're, is mostly job training. You right. Know, the bottom um, is like, you know, the, and that, and you know, there, there's no cross subsidy anyways, right? When my mom taught for a very long time at Montgomery College, Tacoma, mm -hmm. um, in uh, teaching two-year math, right? There was no cross-subsidy no for, for her, right? <laughs> um, so there, yeah, there was no 2-2 two -two at, uh, you know, there, right? And that's, you know, but but those are the areas where probably you're going to end up getting a lot of that. You know, mm -hmm. probably in quite in a quite valuable way, right? Because those are also the students for whom flexibility is is the most important, mm -hmm. right? And just being able to offer courses at specific times is hard for students who are coming from having to mix it with work and everything else, right? I am uh, getting the signal from our producers. Okay. We are at the 90-minute mark. Uh, so that feels like a good place to wrap up. Uh, thank you, Steve. This has been great. Uh, thank you for having really me on. I appreciate the chance to, co to come and talk today. Uh, thank you, as always, to our fantastic production staff here at New America who make this podcast possible. Um, and thank you to all of you who are listening out there. Uh, please feel free to... Tweet at us your suggestions for who future guest hosts should be. Uh, it could be you. It could be someone else that you know. Um, and stick with us. We will be back again next month. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song, George. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.